Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with yesterday's election that defied the polls and pundits and came as a shock to the Republicans, in particular Kevin McCarthy, who may or may not end up as the new Speaker of the House, presiding over a thin majority of perhaps under 10 seats. Joining us is Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. His latest article at the New Democrat Network, published yesterday, is On This 2022 Election Eve Would Rather Be Us Than Them. Then we get an update on the races as well as the recriminations, particularly on the Republican side, since the much-anticipated red wave proclaimed by Fox News failed to materialise. Joining us is David Weigel, a national political reporter at Semaphore, who previously covered the 2020 Democratic Race Congress and grassroots political movements for The Washington Post. His latest articles at Semaphore are Red Ripple, Democrats surprise themselves with their own strength, and Donald Trump's candidates slumped and he's looking for someone to blame. Then finally we'll speak with Paul Light, the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He is the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress and the Search for Answers, 1945-2012. to And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. We'll discuss an expected paralysis of government and the war between Trump and DeSantis intensifying, as well as growing concerns among Democrats about who will head the ticket in 2024. And joining us now is Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. His latest article at the New Democrat Network, published yesterday, is On This 2022 Election Eve Would Rather Be Us Than Them. (laughs) Welcome to Background Briefing, Simon Rosenberg. Yeah, thank you. I, I forgot that's what I entitled that, but well, I, I appreciate you, you bringing that up. Do you still feel that today? <laughs> yeah, of course. I mean, I think that the expectation, look, this is the third consecutive disappointing election for MAGA and for Donald Trump. That's the real story here, is that this is not a politics that's working for the Republican Party. Um, and the, the anti-MAGA majority that stripped the House, the Senate, and the presidency from from them in the last two elections has stepped in again to thwart their e- efforts to, uh, you know, have the kind of power that they want to have to do what they want to do here in Washington. So I'm, I'm deeply encouraged by what happened last night. I think it's good for our democracy. It's good for the, the Western project. It's you know more broadly and, and um, you know, uh, thanks God to the American people who you know, once again, put their heads down and did the work needed to make sure that the extremists, you know, weren't in in charge. Well, that's the most heartening thing that happened, is that a lot of Americans stood up for democracy. 
Yeah, and I, Ian, let me tell you something that I learned in this election, and this is a little bit off from my public story that I'm telling, is that I, you know, because I had a more optimistic view of the election, I started getting invited to lots of gatherings of a couple hundred people over Zoom, whether it was a, state, a local party or an indivisible or swing left organization, postcard writers, right? And what I learned was that during COVID and over the last few years, there's been a very Tocquevillian kind of emergence of these decentralized groups of people who are worried about their country and their democracy and who are doing, taking action to make things better. And it's a vast community of people all around the country, podcasters, the work you do, Ian, right? And, um, and I think that what I am heartened by is that I think the, this was like a bottom-up victory for democracy. This wasn't something that was, there wasn't really a clear field general here, right? There wasn't clearly a hierarchical chain of command. This was just the American people saying no, you know, in under unbelievably difficult circumstances of supply chain problems and COVID and, and you know, high inflation, they still came out and said, look, this is, we're just not going to accept what's happening with the Republican Party and MAGA, and we're going to fight and so you saw a strong performance in five house specials right after Dobbs ended. You saw it in Kansas. You saw it in a huge spike in voter registration after Dobbs ended. You saw it in the amount of money our candidates raised. And so part of where I think the big miss in this election was that commentators missed the intensity on our side and missed the struggle that Republicans had after 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 Dobbs ended. I think I think Dobbs ending was like a blow to the Republican Party. I think that there were even a lot of Republicans who said, you know, we've gone too far here. And you then saw, and I'll, I'll close with this because I've been talking for a long time, but I'm tired. But then you saw many Republicans across the country, not just Liz Cheney and Bill Kristol and people that you know well, Ian, right? People who identified with the modern conservative movement rebelling and fighting against MAGA's takeover of the Republican Party. But you saw it in state after state. You saw 150 Republicans endorse Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan. You saw prominent Republicans endorse Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania. You saw it in Arizona, in Nevada, and in Texas. And this was a much bigger movement, I think, than people realize. And I think that the Liz Cheney wing of the Republican Party deserves credit here for their bravery and courage and really taking on you know, the hostile takeover uh, and uh, by the extremists of their party. And I think it made a difference. I think it was an important part of what happened in this election. And in terms of how it's shaking out, and obviously it's going to take a few more days, if not longer, Simon Rosenberg, what happens if McCarthy, who wants obviously wants to be Speaker, and by the way, he, last night where he was expecting a, a good result, the hall was empty and there, <laughs> it looked like a pretty sad uh, gathering there. So obviously he, he's probably in shock, but he could end up with under 10, a majority of under 10. So how is he going to hold on to the speakership? It's not entirely... And by the way, if he doesn't get the speakership as bad as he is, it seems like everybody else in the House caucus is even worse. Yeah, this is a big problem. I mean, look, MAGA is a big mess. It's a messy, ugly, you know, thing. And and McCarthy is, you know, needed a much bigger majority to be able to take the extremists in his party and and not and not have them blackmail him on every vote. I mean, if if he's under ten, then there's going to be a group of twenty to twenty five of the most hard right 
Republicans who basically have a veto power over everything he's going to do. And they're going to use that power. And so, you know, he needed he needed to have a big win. And that's why what you saw last night was even though I mean, it's it really important that you brought up what you just did, because why in a night where it sure looked like they were going to win the House, why was there doom and gloom? And it's because what I'm describing is that because Kevin McCarthy is not even sure that he's going to be able to be speaker and and because they don't he needed a much bigger win. The other thing I'll say is that I have a I have many Republican friends in Washington and they really had drunk the Kool-Aid. They thought this was going to be a red wave blowout election. You know, the Democrats, it's Joe Biden's old and out of it. And this terrible, woke Democratic Party was going to get their ass kicked. And there was this sort of unbelievable kind of adolescent arrogance in the Republican Party about what was happening in the election when there was a lot of data showing that what they thought was going to happen actually wasn't going to happen. And they just believed this was going to just be a, a blowout. And so this was a this was an absolute blow to the Republicans. I mean, Donald Trump, in one of his truths today, used the word disappointing to describe the election. When does Donald Trump ever admit then anything he's involved in is disappointing, right? And so even he couldn't run away from the reality that this was not the election they thought they, they were going to have. And that, you know, and I, I'm hoping, I'm hoping that this will start to loosen the grip of MAGA over the Republican Party. I hope it will embolden and strengthen the Liz Cheney wing to start taking their party back from the extremists. But But we'll see. Well, the Democrats aren't, giving up on the possibility that they may even hold the House, although probably a little unlikely. But how about the Senate? I mean, there's not much of a difference between Laxalt's numbers and Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, and I believe a lot more votes are going to come from Clark County, which is heavily Democratic. Yeah. Where do you think these last few seats are going to end up, of course, the Democrats lost Wisconsin and yeah. against the most beatable Republican, this dreadful guy. Yeah, I dreadful guy. For the life of me, I can't understand how they lost that one. But it looks like they'll hold Arizona and possibly Nevada. And then you have the runoff, the likely runoff in Georgia, in which you won't have the libertarian siphoning votes off. So walk us through what you think is going to happen yeah. in, in those three races. So, first of all, my I'm very close to the Cortez Masto people. I was out there just a few weeks ago, and they believe there's enough. The votes that are out are going to be favorable to them, and they're going to win. But we'll see, right? You just got to let the votes come in and get counted. I think the people in Arizona have a similar feeling, right, for it to close out in a positive way. And if we win those two races, as you point out, then... The runoff is also not a runoff about the majority. We'll have the majority, the runoff in Georgia, and there is going to be a, a runoff in Georgia. It was announced today. Um, I think this is going to be very, very hard for Walker. I think part of what Walker was able to do was sort of mask his unfitness in a very crowded media environment where people, where there was a lot of information flowing around, there was a lot of advertising I think a one-month, one-on-one Warnock-Walker race is, I don't think Walker can survive that. I think he was able to escape by, he also had Kemp. And think about it, if you're just a mainstream Republican in Georgia, 
you've gotten your governor, right? You voted for your governor. He's going to be governor. You didn't, Stacey Abrams didn't win, right? And then you look at this guy and it's like, I don't want him representing my state, and particularly if it's not going to mean the majority in the Senate. And so I, I think that if we win Arizona and Nevada, we're going to be clearly favored to win Georgia. If it is a battle for the majority, as it was in 2020, uh, you know, we won this last time. And I still think all those dynamics I described will be in play. And so I'm very optimistic about, I think it's, I'd rather be us than them. Right. <laughs> and to use that term right now in the Senate. So at the press conference today, President Biden was asked about whether he'd be running in 2024. And he said that he'd probably make a decision sometime. You know, he wanted to take a, a holiday between Thanksgiving and Christmas and talk to his wife about it. But he more or less said that early in the new year, probably, he'll announce. On the other side, of course, you've got growing fratricide between Trump and Ron DeSantis. And arguably DeSantis had a good day yesterday and Trump didn't. So what's your expectation there? Do you think the feud will intensify? Because I, I get the feeling that Donald Trump is basically on the way out. These rallies, he, he rants on for like two hours, talks about himself, not about the candidate he's supposed to be stumping for. And he's becoming increasingly deranged, I think, and he doesn't look well, and he's probably going to be indicted on top of all of that. I just don't see him lasting. I mean, everybody's talking about whether Biden can last. I think the focus should be on whether whether Trump is a spent vessel. It's well, we're going to find out, right? I mean, I think that I think he's going to run. I think DeSantis is going to challenge him. I think it's going to be, you know, I generally believe that primaries are healthy for parties, presidential primaries, because you know, people trying out new things, candidates are getting tested right before the general election. And I, I generally believe, um, but I don't think that primaries that have two people in them are healthy. And, you know, as I think we saw that between Bernie and Hillary in 2015 and 2016. And I think a two-person primary between Trump and DeSantis is going to be very damaging to the Republican Party. It's going to be an ugly thing. I mean, who would ever want to be part of that party watching these two guys, neither of whom are compelling and interesting, you know, I mean, people that you would want to go hang out with, right? And I think I think it's a really, I think this is emerging as a major problem. And, if, you know, I just don't know that if DeSantis, just in the way that I think many of these candidates who had bloody primaries, you know, came out the other end and couldn't unite the Republican Party on the other end, I don't know that anybody, I don't know that Donald Trump's hold on the Republican Party will be loosened even by him losing the primary. So, you know, maybe DeSantis beats him up, he gets indicted, he runs out of money, and he just fades. But, you know, this is not going to be an easy thing. And I'm, I'm also just not, I don't believe that Ron DeSantis is a big-time player yet. I think that he's shown a lot of evidence of being kind of a rookie and, 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 and reckless and impulsive which is just sort of bad stuff. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not scared of Ron DeSantis as a Democrat. I mean, I've seen a lot of these guys over the years, and I think he's in a second tier. It doesn't mean that he doesn't evolve and grow and become stronger and better. But he's not really ready, I think, for this. 
in my view. So I think this is going to be very messy for them. No matter, there's no scenario here, in my view, where this is where this is really good and healthy for them over the next, you know, 12 months. But in the last couple of minutes, Simon Rosenberg, you don't subscribe then to a theory that Trump is basically an American fascist. And he's, you know, we don't know his ties with Putin, but he obviously wants to model Putin and Orban. And the theory is that he's a sort of reckless and incompetent fascist, whereas uh, DeSantis is a more disciplined and effective fascist. Do you subscribe to that? No, I don't, because I I think it's different. I think they're both sort of below. I mean, I think Trump is an exceptional performer, has, you know, no, has crazy amounts of guile and all the other stuff that he, whatever the words are you describe him. DeSantis, to me, comes off as just kind of a, an unimpressive kind of amateur. And and I, I think it's just different. I think what you're describing, I, I don't buy that he's, I think he may be more competent than Trump, but he's not necessarily a better politician than Trump. And 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 I think that, I don't know that it's going to be easy to replace Trump. Yeah, but Trump where, but where does he want to take America? Well, I think, I think it's, I think that's what's going to be interesting. How does he, does he run as a mini Trump against Trump? That's not going to be effective. I mean, the interesting question is, whether he now has to tap back to be a more traditional Republican. And I, I just don't know. I don't think this is simple, what DeSantis has to do. I'm not I'm not sure that he actually can run and beat Trump. I don't know that he can do it. I don't know that he's skilled enough. I don't think that he's positioned well enough. I just don't know. I mean, we'll see. On Joe Biden, here's what I'd say. I think Joe Biden's been a really good president. I think that he won this election in 2020, which we needed to win. We've had a, a you know a, an exceptional midterm election, far exceeding expectations, and I think that Joe Biden has earned the right to run for re-election. And if he runs, I will support him. Um, but he gets to make the decision now, and I don't know what he's going to decide. And I will tell you that if he ends up not running, I think that the what we're in the midst of as Democrats is in a generational turn. You know, Bernie and Nancy Pelosi and. Joe and, you know, many of our leaders, our older leaders, they won't be leading our party in four years or six years. And that new people are going to have to come forward, including your governor in California. And I'm very, I think that the generational turn that's about to happen is going to be successful for us. I feel like the next generation that's going to take the reins is really good. And I'm very optimistic about this generational turn whenever and however it happens. Well, that will be successful for the Democrats. Well, Simon Rosenberg, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Simon Rosenberg, the president and founder of the New Democrat Network, a leading progressive think tank and advocacy organization. Previously, he was a writer and producer at ABC News for five years before working on the Dukakis and Clinton presidential campaigns, where he was a member of the 1992 Clinton War Room. His latest article at the New Democrat Network, published yesterday, is On This 2022 Election Eve Would Rather Be Us Than Them. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the races as well as the recriminations, particularly on the Republican side, since the much-anticipated red wave proclaimed by Fox News failed to materialize. I'm going to tell all you fascists you may be 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now are David Weigel, a national political reporter at Semaphore, who previously covered the 2020 Democratic Race Congress and the grassroots political movements for The Washington Post. His latest articles at Semaphore are Red Ripple, Democrats Surprise Themselves with Their Own Strength, and Donald Trump's Candidate Slumped, and He's Looking for Someone to Blame. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Weigel. Very good to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And there was nothing more sad, I guess, in a way, than the video clip I saw last night of reporters about to deliver speeches from Kevin McCarthy's ballroom or whatever the venue that he'd rented. And it was mm-hmm. the venue was all but deserted. So what are you hearing about the hangover on the Republican side? Uh, it is a a lot of recriminations from people who did not expect to be making recriminations. I mean, uh, this is comparable, like the stakes are different, but this is comparable to what happened in 2016, where you had uh, Democrats from every wing of the party nervous. Uh, ner- I would say it's even <laughs> it's a little different. They were nervous that they might not win, but they thought they would. Uh, in this case, you had Republicans uh, convinced that they were going to win a red red wave. I mean, I, can, I remember by the end of the campaign, I'd be at a rally. And a Republican would say, we're not just going to have a red wave, we're going to have a, and the crowd would say, red tsunami, which I think uh, demonstrated just the uniformity of belief that that Republicans were going to win a landslide. So they were talking about, um, you know, flipping seats that Joe Biden had won by 20 points, uh, winning in states Republicans hadn't won for 20, 30 years. Uh, It looks like the only state where Republicans flipped anything Biden won by more than single digits was New York, which was its own its own strange situation. And so that was not what people inside the party were planning for. Well, that's an irony, isn't it? That the fate of who, who will end up controlling the House rests with seats in the deep blue state of California and the deep blue state of New York. Uh, yeah, it would. And, and that, that's a story. It's a little wheezy, but the there's a real difference in what the political parties are doing. So you have in New York, and I was talking to a lot of Democrats about this today, just a, a, a political party that was resting on its laurels, always wins, didn't have to worry about winning, uh, did a terrible job supporting candidates, do a terrible, a terrible job distributing resources. And the rest of the country, uh, outside Florida, I mean, where, where Democrats were expecting something pretty bad months ago, they were very prepared. I, I talked to New Hampshire Democrats. They said, yeah, we started our, our ground game uh, in August 2021. I mean, uh, Wisconsin Democrats started immediately, and they always thought uh, this will be a tough year because the party who has the White House is usually at a disadvantage in an election like this. Uh, and they they just decided to do couple things. Organize really early, uh, reintroduce their candidates as kind of problem solvers with very little ideological content, 
uh, and just just hold on. Whereas Republicans, I think, ran a very chaotic, overconfident race. And, and one thing, really, I mentioned how people these rallies were kind of repeating the same refrain. It was also uh, very, very popular opinion uh, among Republicans that the 2020 election was stolen and that to stop another another steal, you just need a lot of people to sign up as poll workers and poll watchers and they would stop it. And so I think Republicans ran way further to the right than they than they should have looking at the data um, because their voters thought there's nothing there's nothing that we need to do, <laughs> nothing that we need to tack back on or nothing that we need to moderate uh, in order to win this thing. But were they pushed by Fox News? After all, it was Fox News who hoisted the notion of the red wave. They were the ones that kept talking about the red wave. I, I haven't looked at Fox News today, but I don't know how they are on the morning after. Uh, well, in real time, they were they had guests on admitting that uh, things had been overrated, but that's part of recrimination. So uh, Fox News promoted Republican candidates very heavily. Uh, and this is a dynamic you've seen in um, in the media in the, in the states generally is that uh, Republicans, they interact much less with um, traditional media, the legacy media. Uh, they depend a lot more on partisan media that ask them friendly questions, uh, promote their candidacies. And, you know, I talk to Democrats, I talk to Republicans, like uh, uh, reporters want to make news necessarily. They don't want to just promote a candidate. And I think they got used to just this, this sort of um, veal pen, basically, where, where they were doing media with people who just asked how great they were and how much momentum they had. And not uh, saying, are you doing the exact wrong thing? Or why do you have this position that is going to be super unpopular? So, Dave Weigel, in your article at Semaphore, Donald Trump's candidates right. slumped and he's looking for someone to blame. Uh, you mentioned that he's apparently really flipped out and very angry about uh, Oz in Pennsylvania. And that he's actually blaming his wife, Melania, because she pushed him to bolster Oz? Is, uh, at least that's, I guess, according to Maggie Hammond in the New York Times. What more do you know about Trump's state of mind? Because, I mean, he's been saying some awful things. I mean, just not long after Nancy Pelosi's husband got beaten over the head with a hammer in, in what could be described as an attempted murder, Trump referred to her as an animal. Well, he said that, but a lot of Republicans down the ballot were saying... Uh, that we're making jokes about it. Uh, like Glenn Youngkin, the Republican governor of Virginia, uh, who I, I think it could be said overextended himself this cycle. I mean, he was trying to flip three seats in his state. He flipped one. He, he traveled across the country to help Republican candidates. Most of them lost. I mean, he, he made this kind of glib joke about how uh, Republicans were trying to send Pelosi home to be with him by retiring her and beating in, you know beating the Democratic majority. Uh, he apologized after after the election. He apologized. A lot of Republicans are just kind of telling jokes about that. They're in conservative media, which has you know lots of that, lots of parts. Um, there's just a lot of mo- not just mockery of the Pelosi thing, but if you look at Fox, Fox News prime time, uh, you know, theories that this something was something was up, something was happening, something was there was something not right with the story. There must be some murmur, which I'm not going to repeat, but uh, you know, some 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 something about the Pelosi's that. This couldn't have just been a break-in and an attack. And they just were dismissive of the idea that somebody uh, made a violent attack against somebody he, had, he disliked for political reasons. And they said, and they just kind of dismissed it as a conspiracy theory and made fun of it. Now, I don't think they moved a lot of votes. I think that's, that's more a demonstration of this Republican idea that, like, you couldn't be too far right-wing. You, could, you couldn't be too conservative 
that Democrats were so pathetic and so disorganized that you were going to just beat them with whatever you did. And, and that led them to that led them to a lot of disappointments. So in terms of recriminations, though, I mean, clearly Trump didn't do well. And had he done well, he'd be crying from the rooftops. And the only, I guess, the big win for him was J.D. Vance. And that was hardly a love fest between those two. He, on the stump, talked about him kissing his ass, which wasn't particularly helpful. So how soon do you think before the war between Trump and DeSantis breaks out? Because Trump must be chafing under the press plaudits heading for the governor in Florida, who's basically been given a lot of credit for where the Republicans did well. I mean, he gerrymandered the state to the point where uh, I think he picked up five Democratic seats, which in the House may be, may be what will make the difference. So do you think that the war between Trump and DeSantis will break out soon? Uh, aspects of it already ha- have. I mean, you've had Trump, yeah, as, you, as you were kind of pointing to, making fun of DeSantis a little bit. You've had DeSantis's defenders saying that um, – saying that this is the one governor and they're they're right the one incumbent republican who really beat the spread and 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 worked to elect the party you mentioned the seats in, in florida DeSantis literally threw out a republican map that was going to save a couple democratic seats but i think they would have had a good night anyway um but uh and he has and he has uh and he replaced it with one where that redrew a bunch of democratic seats into ones that republicans would win so at beyond but beyond that i mean his statewide margin uh, of double digits against somebody who'd been the governor of the state before, who'd lost a pretty close race for governor in in a in a what turned out to be a worse Democratic year, between Charlie Chris. Like what impressed people was that DeSantis actually added to the Republican coalition. He won a lot of new Hispanic voters. He won some suburbanites over, uh, and they thought they had candidates around the country who could do something like that, and they didn't. Certainly, Trump couldn't do that, and. But DeSantis is also disciplined. I mean, DeSantis does not give a go out there and give a rambling hour, hour and a half speech dovetailing to everything he's, he's interested in. DeSantis is kind of a brutal media operator who makes announcements, uh, gets bills, passes them through Republican legislature, picks fights. I mean, he picked that was just before I talked to you, I was talking to some social conservatives and they were citing the DeSantis as an inspiration, particularly because you know he, he punished Disney for criticizing his parents' rights bill, which Democrats called the "Don't Say Gay" bill. You know, restricts LGBT uh, education or mentions of LGBT life and gender in schools. And they said, "Okay, like DeSantis can do that and win. Where's the Trump win?" Um, now, when it comes to DeSantis and and Trump themselves, uh, that is boiling a little more slowly, but. These are you know weather patterns that that affect each other. It's like the more the more people who come out and say we need a winner, not not Donald Trump. We need a winner like DeSantis. Uh, the more times you saw the New York Post, uh, which you know Trump's hometown paper, really putting DeSantis on the cover as the future of the party, and literally the future using a pun on his name. Uh, that will affect what what Trump is saying and thinking. I think what you had here too is um, Trump has been on the ballot. Well, not he's been on the ballot twice. He's been the leader of the party, effectively, in four elections, one of which he won. Uh, this is, but one of which the party definitively, like, definitively won. None of which they won by a, none. None that were blowouts. And you're starting to see some worry that okay, if if people who run on the Trump agenda and not something 
more tailored and more specific and more positive. If they can blow it in Michigan, they can blow it in Pennsylvania, they can they can lose Wisconsin. Why bother? <laughs> why go back to that well? I think as more people ask that question, it's going to stoke a uh, division between DeSantis and Trump. But all the predictions uh, and expectations of violence and some and and there were some manifestations of it in Arizona, in Maricopa County, of these vigilantes and dressed in combat gear, intimidating voters, etc. That didn't materialize. It does seem like they've stopped the steel far right in this country. Their bark is worse than their bite, unless, of course, something starts happening soon because the, the count's going to be dragged out, and particularly in Arizona and California. So I don't want to be glib about it, but there wasn't violence in 2020 either. What there is... Um, is a lot of uh, paranoia that uh, you need to show up and watch these polls because Democrats are going to try to stuff the ballot boxes. People um, might have weapons. I mean, I'm not, again, not being blasé. I was in Arizona. I went to some drop boxes to look for folks who were monitoring this stuff. Um, They're not stalking around with guns and pointing them at people. Um, They are trying to record uh, what they think is suspicious. And often that leads to, you know, bogus stuff like, a video that doesn't say what they said it said does, uh, but not full on violence. Uh, I don't want I, I don't want to ever rule that out because it's a bad idea to say something that sounds bad can't happen. And that's not the pattern we were going to. You saw a lot of, and I think this is a mistake. I do think the 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 the, the intensity of this Republican rhetoric loses them votes. Um, they'll both in order to talk about something like. Uh, we should have lots of people getting excited and becoming poll workers. They will use apocalyptic, you know, be ready to fight kind of rhetoric. Uh, like uh, they'll talk about tyranny if, you know, some milquetoast Democrat wins an election. Uh, they'll talk about you know, when it comes to the legacy of COVID and, and the rules on movement and schools and masks and stuff. They talk about that as if that was a 1984 dystopia moment. That is not translated into people in, in sort of the style you saw in Brazil's election, you know, having paramilitary groups go out and try to suppress the vote. I, but I, I'm not going to say it's never going to happen. I'm, I'm just saying there's a lot of, uh, I guess the term is LARPing, <laughs> you know, you know live-action role-playing, people talking really tough when all they intend to do is stand there with a the camera. So just in the last couple of minutes, then, uh, David Weigel, at the end of the day, even though a lot of Democrats are breathing a sigh of relief, and obviously it could have been so much worse for them, and in a curious way, you have to give Joe Biden some credit. I mean, he's been governing pretty well, getting a lot done with an incredibly thin majority. And he certainly defied the expectation that the party of the incumbent in the White House usually loses. Do you think that this is going to sort of bolster him? I mean, I think the questions are still hanging about 2024. Will he run and won't he run? And and if the Republicans, of course, do even retake the House by four or five seats, that's not going to stop Jim Jordan from having Benghazi investigations into uh, Hunter Biden and impeach Joe Biden. Yeah, I don't detect much Democratic worry about that. Uh, right or wrong at this point in this country, um, presidents can be impeached, but nothing nothing else happens. So they, you, just, you just end up polarizing the two parties and the president's party gets behind him. Most of the, the, the opposition gets up against him. They like the, they, I wouldn't say they, they look, they would look forward to it, but the idea of Biden being impeached over something uh, that would ever come to fruition, like they, they think that would just make Republicans look like they're wasting a bunch of time. 
Uh, I think the worry is more um, actuarial, which is that Biden is going to turn 80 this month. Uh, Biden would be 81 in the heat of a campaign. Uh, and he has on the trail uh, been 80, a man nearing 80 years old. He um, screws things up. He muddles words. He some specific examples last week is he he'll, he argued with some people heckling him, uh, which happens at Biden events because they're not that crowded. It's factually. I mean, he's not he's not draw giant crowds like some politicians. And he'll kind of argue and sometimes make a mistake on policy or something that Republicans think they can use against him. When I talk to Democrats, they're very willing to talk about moving beyond Biden, running some other some other nominee, but they don't know how to start the conversation. And so it, it sounds very 3D chess and very silly to say that uh, after the best per- performance in a midterm election by a president in 20 years, Biden should not think about not running again. Um, but that is the Democratic conversation. Uh, and had had this been a blowout election, had Republicans, you know, got captured the House at 11 o'clock yesterday and captured the the Senate with 53 seats, I think there would be knives out for Biden already, saying uh, that's it, time to go. Uh, they're not going to have that conversation now, even though uh, you talk to a Democrat and you know, get them off the record. They really like the idea of running um, someone like the like Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan or someone like the new the new governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. They like that idea of of finding somebody who's young and uh, adroit and, you know, can campaign like crazy against what they think will be Donald Trump, who will be, I think, 78 years old in 2024, uh, who's made a ton of enemies, who's, made, who's undisciplined, who can raise a lot of money. But we're, we're seeing, you know, Donald Trump endorsing people and raising a lot of money and giving them just an awful message that most people didn't want uh, is not helpful to anybody. Well, Dave Weigel, I thank you so much for joining yeah. us here today. No, of course. It was good to be on. Thank you very much. Well, thank you again. I've been speaking with Dave Weigel, who's a national political reporter at Semaphore, who previously covered the 2020 Democratic race, Congress, and grassroots political movements for The Washington Post. His latest articles at Semaphore are Red Ripple, Democrats Surprise Themselves with Their Own Strength, and Donald Trump's Candidates Slumped, and He's Looking for Someone to Blame. We're going to take a brief station break back discussing an expected paralysis of government and the war between Trump and DeSantis intensifying, as well as growing concerns among Democrats about who will head the ticket in 2024. To lead must follow But if you fall You fall alone If you should stand Then who's to guide you? Hey, good You didn't say what you meant You just changed Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Paul Light, who is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center for Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress and the Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. Welcome to Background Briefing, Paul Light. Nice to be here, my dear friend. Well, thank you, Paul. And what do you make of this undecided election hanging by a thread, both the House and the Senate? We won't know probably for several days. Interesting enough, in terms of the House, it's the Democratic seats that should be safe in California and New York. They're the outstanding ones where the Republicans could pick up a couple more. But at this point, it looks as if either the Democrats could hold the House by one or two seats or that the Republicans could could win the House by maybe three or four seats or five seats. So either way, what's that going to do for American governance? Well, nature abhors a vacuum in the United States House, less so in the Senate. Uh, my concern is that we're looking down the uh, road at a fair amount of stalemate, slowdown, uh, chaos around what Congress can and cannot get through that deals, uh, that faces uh, Congress in terms of the budget, some major policies that have to be dealt with, renewals and so forth. So I said, it's, it's going to be a slowdown, I think, uh, although, you know, it could be that uh, Congress will find some courage and find some speed dealing with particularly important issues. But overall, I think it's a stalemate-oriented outcome. So does this mean, though, that if the Republicans only win by a few seats, will that stop people like Jim Jordan from carrying on and having Benghazi-like hearings and impeaching Biden and uh, going after Hunter Biden? I mean, is the fact that they are barely hanging by a thread, is that going to change the political dynamics? I would expect that it would uh, intensify that kind of uh, congressional agenda. Uh, Jim Jordan is not going to take backseat to anybody. And he may uh, decide that, well, it's better to create a fair amount of havoc uh, than to produce legislative accomplishments. Uh, so what you're seeing here is an electorate that's sharply divided by party and, uh, uh, and by confidence in Congress uh, to solve tough problems and certainly confidence in Joe Biden. I, I think this creates a bed for intense partisan bickering. Uh, that's my view of it, looking back uh, to similar stalemating kinds of elections back to the 1990s. And I guess neither of us know whether the Democrats could hold on by a couple of seats, right? What kind of scenario would that look like to you? Again, the positioning now uh, for the next election, both in the House and Senate and uh, regarding Joe Biden's decision to run or not run, these hold very strong sway here. There's a lot of process, excuse me, there's a lot of second guessing already underway 
uh, regarding Joe Biden and should he run? Should he go gently into that dark night? What about Nancy Pelosi? There's just enough chaos going on to slow the process uh, down quite dramatically. And Congress knows nothing better than how to slow things down. So one individual, uh, two, uh, a small committee, a big committee, uh, I just don't see a lot of productivity coming from here. The, the election does not give us much certainty about an agenda. You know, we don't have a clear guideline. The Democrats didn't prevail because of X. The Republicans didn't lose because of Y. And absent that narrative, uh, then you end up with a lot of energy around doing nothing. But on the other hand, many analysts have argued that Biden has done remarkably well in terms of governance, maybe not in terms of messaging, but in terms of governance. Having such a thin majority has got a lot done. And certainly uh, last night's or yesterday's results from the midterms are much, much more positive in terms of the expectations uh, and you have to give Biden some credit that it's very unusual, is it not, for the party of the incumbent in the White House to hold on in midterms, let alone be in a position where they may have won the Senate by an extra seat or even two, and they may even hold on to the House. Isn't that in itself an achievement? Well, it is an achievement, but will there be anything beyond? Yes, we have a spin on the uh, midterm election that says Joe Biden uh, prevailed by not losing badly. Uh, so the whole setup here is to say, you know, he did better than expected. Uh, Democrats did better than expected. Uh, not the great wipeout that the pollsters were presenting uh, three, six uh, weeks ago. It's, it's basically a great sigh election. Uh, Joe Biden's back in the White House saying, wow, this could have been really bad. That does not necessarily argue for this is going to be good. Do the Democrats have the votes to push through a significant agenda, especially uh, bleeding into a very, very tough presidential reelection campaign and possibly having a, uh, a blood fest between Donald Trump and his opponents within the Republican Party. I think there's a lot of energy around who's going to be at the top of the ticket in both parties two years from now. Will Joe say, basically, I'm on my way. I did a good job. We had a good election. Uh, will Donald Trump listen to what he's uh, hearing and pull out? I think there's a lot of chaos out there. Uh, and I think we're going to see it extracted and affecting uh, the um, congressional agenda. Will we get anything done in this kind of a boiler? But how could Biden announce that he wasn't going to run again without making himself an instant lame duck? That's Correct. What, that's what happened to Teddy Roosevelt. Um, totally, absolutely true. But I would say, and we'll have to take a look at Las Vegas betting right now, um, we'd have to say that there is a significant chance that he will step away. I think Democrats will be talking about it uh, for some time to come. Uh, whether Joe Biden decides to stay or leave may depend on his own health, may depend on other issues well beyond his control. I'm not saying he's going to depart. It's not an automatic. 
but you're going to get the feeling that Dems are, that the Democrats are going to start to say, okay, we can run with Joe Biden, but who are we going to be up against? It's a different race for Joe Biden to be facing a younger Republican who's got lots of energy and ideas versus Donald Trump. We'll just have to see. But I would say the pressure is going to be on Joe Biden uh, to really think it through. And he will be pushed in the short term to make his announcement about staying or leaving quickly. Well, the only way that the Democrats seem to do well, particularly in terms of presidential elections, is with a surprise candidate like Bill Clinton or a Barack Obama. And you have to admit on this particular election that we just uh, witnessed that the best thing that happened for the Democrats was Barack Obama campaigning for these candidates and putting some fire and life into the campaign. Otherwise, the Democratic pantheon is fairly geriatric. Uh, I'm, I don't mean to be uh, ageist here. <laughs> but it, well, You don't have to be ageist to tell the truth here. Um, in all candor, the Democratic uh, bench is light right now. Uh, who is there within the party ready to step up? Uh, a former vice president occupies the White House. Uh, a first uh, lady uh, was the running and a senator, uh, ran for uh, the presidency most recently for the Democrats, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, yes, the Democratic bench is thin. And one of the questions is who they got. Is it Amy Klobuchar? She's been out there for some time now, you know, stalking uh, further uh, advancement. I just don't know who it'll be. But a lot of people are going to take a look at Joe, when they, uh, uh, Joe Biden and say, OK, maybe we're going to be up against a different kind of candidate. Is DeSantis uh, the character that's going to bring that energy from the Republican side and push Joe Biden into a corner? I just don't know. But Joe Biden is, despite uh, the cliffhanger victory here, Joe Biden is vulnerable, if not to defeat in a second term, uh, certainly he's going to be under a great deal of pressure and he's going to be scrutinized closely, which he has been from the very beginning of his service. Well, if the Republicans do take the House, even by a very thin margin, they will spend the next two years beating up Biden, beating up Hunter Biden, oh. driving his numbers down. And Jim Jordan and these other bomb throwers will be foaming at the mouth around the clock. And that's just not even a prediction. That's a certainty. But on the other side, you mentioned the possible fratricide, which is already starting now between Trump and Ron DeSantis, who he referred to recently as Ron DeSanctimonious. Um, yes. I think that the surprise there might be that DeSantis is an incredibly boring candidate. Right. I mean, he's doing very well so far. And he's, he looks like the winner because he gerrymandered the state of Florida so much that that's where most of their pickups in the House have come from. Correct. Uh, so, you know, he's the hero of the moment. But as he gets on the campaign trail, I think he's going to bore the hell out of people. He's just a dull thug. That's what he is. Well, you know, it's a good diagnosis, my friend. Uh, and, you know, there are other Republicans out there. There's going to be a sorting going on because... Uh, in all likelihood, I, I don't know what it will be in terms of percentages, but 
there's a high likelihood that Donald Trump will be forced to the uh, uh, seat, um, to forced to a final uh, resolution of his time in public office uh, well before uh, the election cycle begins. Um, so, I, you know, you, it's a hard uh, future to predict, but it's not all chaos. There's a, a fairly significant uh, pressure right now on resolving some of the issues of candidate fratricide uh, to that extent. And I think there'll be some resolution in fairly quick order, a front runner to emerge on the Republican side, uh, some pressures to resolve Joe Biden's uh, question or help Joe Biden decide whether he wants to stay for a full four years and go up against uh, a different kind of Republican candidate. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, sign stealing going on right now as Dems and ours uh, look for answers. But I'm guessing that uh, Joe Biden, I'd say the probability of being on a ticket four years from now might be relatively low. Uh, we'll just have to see. Well, Donald Trump, of course, has been the main agent of division in this country and polarization. Not that it didn't exist before him, but he certainly exacerbated it. And he has created this stop the steal lie that's metastasized into a bedrock belief amongst Republicans. And the concern was that in this election, uh, if enough of these election deniers on the Republican side, 300 running, get elected, they capture the electoral machinery, and then by 2024, we'll have a one-party state, like Orban, the the hero of the Republicans in Hungary. Mm -hmm. That doesn't look like it's happened in the sense that enough Americans seem to respond to the call to save democracy. Do you feel that that happened yesterday? It, It it did feel that there was a cold setting in on uh, that kind of heated rhetoric. Donald Trump disappeared from the stage, although uh, as is his want, he is always nearby. So I I did feel it that um, even the deniers were to a certain extent uh, knocked back uh, because uh, they were worried about accumulating enough votes to survive. So yes, I, I think that's that's a true um, portrait of what's been going on. Now we're going to see energy brewing around uh, the presidential elections to come. And that's going to be uh, a good four-year run. And the first uh, issue on the agenda is whether Donald Trump uh, really has enough left uh, to mount a significant energetic run at retaking the presidency. And that one is going to be on the uh, public agenda for some time to come. Well, maybe not though, Paul, because lately Trump's rallies have, he's spoken for like two hours, an hour and a half, basically talking about himself. Right. And I think that act's gonna get stale if it's not already stale. I just don't know how he can keep it up. And he's also facing all kinds of possibilities of ending up in jail. He's got lawsuits up the kazoo and the possibility of being indicted at any moment by the Department of Justice. I don't think he's uh, in good shape, frankly. And God knows, you know, he may even choke on a Big Mac. I mean, he's not a very healthy human being. He certainly is not. I think he's going to to, uh, work hard to remain relevant, but you're quite right. He is on the downslope. He is getting older every day, obviously. 
Um, and I think that a party and some of the uh, after election uh, reviews are going to suggest that he certainly did not help Republicans. Uh, and it may be his time to go. Now, pushing him out is something else. He's got a lot of supporters who are very strong willed. But, you know, there is a glimmer here, whether you want to call it uh, of hope or doom, that Donald Trump stays uh, running for office um, are are dwindling, and he's more seen right now as a potential damager uh, of his own party than a supporter. But we'll see. I think you've got a good take on him. Well, Paul Light, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Very much my pleasure. Thank you. And I've been speaking with Paul Light, who is the Paulette Goddard Professor of Public Service at New York University and the founding principal investigator of the Global Center on Public Service. Previously, he served as the founding director of the Center for Public Service and director of the Governmental Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. He's the author of Thickening Government, The Tides of Reform, Government by Investigation, Presidents, Congress, and the Search for Answers, 1945 to 2012. And his latest book is The Government Industrial Complex, Tracking the True Size of Government. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow at 5 p.m. Bye for now. Disappeared by half